This week, we are beginning a new series called The Story of God. And I am really excited about this series because what we want to be able to do is take you, the first book in the Bible is called Genesis, the last book is called Revelation, and in the next two, uh, 10 weeks, we're going to take you through the whole Bible. We're having four-hour services every week, and uh, no, we're not doing that. Um, but uh, well, it's going to be kind of a, you know, a bird's eye view of going through the Bible. But we want to be able to give to you the big picture so that when you read a particular Bible verse or Bible chapter, that you'll see how that fits in to the big story of the Bible. What we need to understand about the Bible is that it's one story with many chapters. Sometimes it's easy to look at the Bible and think it's just a, a collection of stories and proverbs and poetry kind of all smushed together into one book and we call it the Bible. It's a better way to look at it is to say that God actually wrote one book with many chapters. And what we want to be able to do is unpack what that big story theme is so that all the small parts make better sense. Um, so we're going to be, as I say, spending 10 weeks doing this. And the first week is on Genesis chapter 1 to 3, the first three chapters uh, of the Bible. Now, something else that I'm very excited about, you'll be getting a, an email probably sent out either tonight or tomorrow, that what we're inviting you to do at the same time as us going through the story of God is we have for you, I sound like an info commercial, we have for you tonight a, uh, a, a Bible reading plan that's going to go along with what we're going to be looking at on Sundays. So you, every week I preach on Genesis 1 to 3, this week, and then you'll see passages, seven passages that you can read one a day that takes you through this week, looking at, uh, looking at this, and then next week we'll preach on Abraham, and then there'll be some Bible verses that you can read every day for there. And so I think this is going to be a great way to get us all reading the Bible together and really getting into God's Word and seeing what He would have to say to us. So uh, that's another good reason to fill out that card that got sent around so that you can get on our mailing list and we'll send that out to you. I think it's going to be really helpful. So I look forward to hearing about uh, what God will speak to you as you read his word daily. So uh, Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Now, if you think of the, uh, of the Bible as a tree, uh, Genesis would be the seeds of that tree. Everything that is written in the whole Bible is found in seed form in the book of Genesis. Genesis, I think, far and away, in chapters 1 to 3, I think is the most important part of God's Word. It sets the stage for everything thereafter. I think I've studied these three chapters more than any other part of the Bible. And it seems like no matter where else I'm reading, it somehow finds its way back to these three chapters. And so I, we really want to spend some time today looking at what God would teach us, is particularly uh, in the first chapter and the third chapter. So uh, let me just say one other thing about the book of Genesis, especially these first couple chapters. They are controversial. 
the biggest problem, so the uh, chapters one and two describe the creation of the world. Now, the biggest problem with that is the description of how the world was made was written by people who lived at least three, 4,000 years ago. What that means is that they're thinking about things and writing about things that are different than what we think about. So when a modern person hears how the world was created, what they want to know is how is the stuff created? And the writers of, the, of Genesis, they aren't, he, I think it's Moses, is not thinking about that. He's thinking about something else, which we're going to get into. But it's hard because we want the Bible to answer certain questions, and it's not really interested in answering those questions. It's not interested in uh, which was created first, the stars and the moon or the earth? And was the earth, you know, did it, was there a big bang or did it evolve over time? Uh, those questions are not being answered. So that can be a little disappointing for you if you care about those things. But the first thing that you need to understand is that the Bible, including Genesis chapter 1 and 2, is not a scientific document. Uh, they're not thinking about those things. They don't care. And I think they were thinking about something even more important. So if you consider yourself a science kind of person, go team, and uh, you get to do study that tries to understand how the world was formed and have fun with that. And the Bible really isn't commenting on that. There's one verse here that is commenting on it, and you'll see how deep and complicated it is. And it's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There you go. <laughs> Any questions? I'll take questions. Uh, that's, that's all that's being said, is in the beginning, the idea of in the beginning is an indeterminate amount of time. In the beginning could be a minute or millions of years. That word allows there to be that amount of flexibility. So if you're a you know, biology person, you can you know, rest at ease. If you, however long, old you think the earth is, it's all good. Uh, it's not going to contradict the Bible because the Bible isn't talking about that. So in the beginning, God created the heavens, which is another word for sky, and the earth, which is another word for land. God created sky and land. And that's all they wanted you to know, that God made this. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to break from the main point of, uh, of what we're going to get into just for one minute. There is a, uh, a theologian, his name is John Sailhammer. And uh, he wrote the NIV Compact Commentary. And he has put forward a, a, uh, a theory to explain the first few chapters of Genesis and this is what he says. 
He says, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, says God created the heavens and the earth. And that's the summary of the creation of the world. And then starting in verse 2, going through to chapter 2, is not a description on how the world was made. It's a description on how God made the promised land, the land of Israel. Now, I'm not going to unpack that because you might get nervous. What? This, I grew up. So this guy has done an amazing job unpacking, he says, the best way to understand Genesis 1 and 2. So the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Moses wrote those first five books. And so what Salehammer says is Genesis 1 and 2 is an introduction not just to the creation of the world, not just to the book of Genesis, but an introduction to the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch is a story of how God established a people in a particular land to be his witnesses to the world. And so if you're interested, what I've asked Tara to do is when you get the email about the, um, about the Bible reading plan, I asked her to attach a PDF which gives his paraphrase of Genesis chapter 1, and you can read that if that interests you. If you are amused, you can get his book, and it's called Genesis Unbound, and it's a fascinating read. Uh, so what I'm going to try to do is honor the different kinds of interpretations of Genesis chapter 1, pray for me, and uh, what I think can be true regardless of where you camp, but uh, I just wanted to share that with you because I think some of you, if you're interested in these kinds of things, it's very remarkable. And I think he does a better job explaining the tricky parts of Genesis 1 than any other theologian that I've read. And so uh, I wanted you to know about that. Okay. Now, let's look. There are three themes that I would like to outline in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 that be, end up becoming the three themes that you're going to see through the rest of the Bible. It's What's God's purpose for humanity and for creating this world? What's the problem? And then what is God's provision? We're going to look at those. There are three Ps, which means it's from God. Okay, so first of all, we're going to look at our purpose. Now, the purpose of our creation is that God has made us for relationship. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, gives us a description, the first description of humanity. And if you look at this description, uh, press a button, there we go. It says, now this is describing people for the very first time. And I want to draw your attention to three things. It says, God said, let us make mankind in our image. So what is the image that people are made in? They're made in an our and us image, not in a me and I image. It's made in a plural. So to be made in the image of God is something about an our, a community, something more than just an individual. And people would say that this is a hint to the Trinity. That's debated. But however you understand it, 
we are described as being made in an our image, not in a my image. And then it says, uh, let's skip the middle part, and then it says male and female, he created them. We see now a definition of humanity being male and female. Again, about relationship and community. We're not, we're not made as, as one gender or one sex. We're made in two, uh, not 60, which is, uh, if you don't know the arguments going on these days, that there's 60 different genders. I don't know if you've heard that. Some people say that. But the Bible says that there's two, male and female. Again, community. Now, it says in the middle, so that they may rule over uh, birds and fish and creatures that crawl, so that may rule over the world. That's what our job description is as human beings, is we're called to rule the world. Now, what does ruling the world have to do with relationship? When you look at every other animal that's described in Genesis chapter 1, it says, and they reproduced after their own kind. So, if you're an elephant, you have only one concern. You make more elephants. That's your commission by God. Go make yourself more elephants. If you're a duck, you make more ducks. Now, what's unique about people is we are the only created being that is to take responsibility for something more than ourselves. He says be fruitful and multiply just like he does to all the other animals. But then he says something uniquely to us. Take responsibility for more than you. Take responsibility for the well-being of all that I've created. That's a relational commissioning. You are to concern yourself with something more than you with others. So we're made in our image. We're made to concern ourselves with more than our own species. And we are made male and female. All these things point to God creating us in relationship for relationship. Only once in the first, few, in the first two chapters of Genesis, only once is something negative described. All through the book, it says, and it was, very, it was good or it was very good. Once it says, something was not good. And when God first made Adam, he looked and he says, it is not good. And he needed what is called a helper or a, or a mate. And woman was created. The only thing that was described as not good in Genesis 1 and 2 was being alone. Another indicator that says we have been made for relationship through and through, first with God and then with one another. We're relational beings, and it's what sets us apart from all creation, that we can have a dynamic living relationship with God, with one another, and with the world. What then, if that's the purpose of humanity, what is the purpose of creation? The first description of the earth is that it was formless and void. And there's fancy Hebrew words that preachers like to talk about. What formless and void basically means is that it was uninhabitable. The way that the earth was at this time is that it couldn't sustain relationship with God or with one another. You couldn't live there. 
So, Genesis 1 is the story of God making the three ingredients that are necessary for a relationship. Now, I've talked on this before, and uh, I just, the same analogy works for me. And so I would like to use the example as having a date as to what you need to create for a date, a relationship date, and uh, how that relates to Genesis chapter 1. The first thing that you need for a date is you need a time. You go, you know, hey. <laughs> if you're like me when I said it, your voice cracks and it's a little awkward. But you, uh, but you, you know, you, you need to, if you're going to have a date, you're going to get to know somebody, you need to be in the same location. Super helpful to, uh, to have a date. So you need a time. So the first thing that God creates is time to have a relationship with us. It says in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, Let there be lights in the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark as sacred times, days, and years. The moon and the stars and the sun are described as, as uh, monitoring time so that we can have festivals to connect with God, to mark times and years. You need time to have a relationship. The second ingredient that you need is space. You need to be in the same location. You need to be in the same time. You need time and you need space. In verse 10 it says, and God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. Seas, we think of seas as meaning ocean. It just means water. It could mean a lake or a river or a saltwater ocean. It just means water. He gathered that together. So if you're going to have relationship, there needs to be a physical place for the two of you connect. You need to be there at the same time, and you need to have the, uh, a physical proximity. And the final thing is resources. It says in verse 11, the land produced vegetation. Let the land produce vegetation. So that's sustenance in order to live and thrive so that we can engage in relationship. God created time, space, and resources so that we can have a relationship with him and with one another. I think that is a beautiful description of the creation of the world. It's not about how he made molecules. It's about how he created a place to have a relationship with humanity. I think it's an overwhelming thought that this was created for us to connect with God. So he called us up for a date. He gave us a time, space, and we have some food together. What's the problem with such a beautiful picture? of a loving God wanting to be connected with you and I. Maybe you can consider this to be the first part of the problem. It's actually the most beautiful thing. But here's what it says in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says, you are free to eat. So now we have Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden enjoying relationship. It's ideal. There is no sin. There's, there's no bad attitudes. There's nothing rude or perverse. It's just pure love, peace, and joy. And then what God does, he says a fascinating thing. In the middle of this beautiful garden that he created to have 
communion or fellowship or relationship with us, covenant with us, he puts a tree. And this tree, he tells the people, you can't eat from that tree. You can eat from any other tree. Well, let me read it. You, may, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, any tree, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die, and die would be to be separated. Why does God do that? In order for us to have a love relationship with God, it needs to be based on free will. If it's simply robots, you know, giving kind of mental, whatever assent to God, that's not relationship. And so he puts at the very heart of our relationship with him the freedom to reject him. So that when we choose him, it's done out of our free will, not out of manipulation or obligation. What a remarkable way to establish relationship with us, to build it on free will. Now, wouldn't you know it? We took that free will and used it to break relationship with God. What broke relationship is mistrust. Let's look at now chapter 3. And let's read five verses that describe the problem that you and I still find ourselves in. It's called a broken world. Now the serpent, this is a, a symbol of Satan. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What's the first way that you begin to separate yourself from God? you get a seed of doubt. Did God really say? Is he really good? Is he really powerful? What about all those people starving? What about all these natural catastrophes? Is he really good? The problem of broken relationship begins with the seed of doubt. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, which he never said, or you will die. And then here we go. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is at the root of every problem in our life is we mistrust God which means that all that's left is to trust in ourselves. If God cannot be trusted to be good and powerful, I become responsible for deciding what is right and wrong, good and evil. It's my judgments. The problem with that is we're not qualified to decide what right and wrong is. More than that, your definition of right and wrong will clash with my definition of right and wrong. And now we have wars and further separation. The root of everything wrong in your life, in my life, and in our world is the mistrust of God. Did God really say, doubt him, trust yourself? What was the result? Broken relationships. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They became ashamed 
and try to cover their shame with some fig leaves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Doesn't that sound beautiful? He's looking. He's come to the garden to have relationship with Adam and Eve. And they heard him, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what we see is the first separation is a separation between Adam and Eve, where there's now fig leaves, shame, guilt. And we see a separation from God where they hide from him. The result of mistrusting God is broken relationships. First with God, they hid. Then with each other, instead of being one flesh and unashamed, as it says in chapter 2, now they're sowing fig leaves and they now are separated from one another. And they're also separated from the world. The curse that comes on them is that women will have pain in childbirth. Uh, men, as it's described here, will be, that when they try to work the land, it's not going to be hard work. And the land is not going to cooperate with you. It's not a garden anymore. It has to be tamed because you've moved outside of my garden, the place of relationship with me. And it's a return back to the one thing that was not good, being alone. What's God's provision? First thing that we see God doing, which is always true about God, and we're going to find this through the whole story of God, is he initiates relationship. What does he say in chapter 3, verse 9? Where are you? Where are you? Have you ever uh, known that something is wrong with somebody? They've hurt you. They've done something wrong. Um, I don't always want to be around people who have hurt me, mistrust me, whatever it would be. And what we find in the character of God is he always is the one who initiates relationship with us. We're ashamed. We're hiding. We don't want to be known, and he initiates seeking us out and having a relationship with us. The second thing that we hear him do is that he covers their guilt and shame. Verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin, animal skin, for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The way that you and I, when we feel sinful and ashamed is we create clothes for ourselves and they're called masks and defensiveness and denial and excuses and blaming and we're trying to cover our guilt with things that alienate us more and more and more whatever you do to cover your sin outside of god will always take you farther and farther away from the people around you. What we find instead with God's provision of covering is the covering, this animal skin covering. Oh, man, I wish, especially Michael Wilson's back there. His definition of this is so outstanding, but I got five minutes left and I can't say it all. But what the animal skin is a foreshadowing of is uh, that an animal 
needed to be sacrificed for the covering of the sins of Adam and Eve. This is a foreshadowing of all of the Old Testament that would sacrifice lambs and bulls, again, to cover our sin that pointed then beyond that to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate sacrifice, who spilt his blood, his body was broken, that we could be restored. While our solution to our problems is further alienation, his solution is to sacrifice himself that we could be restored to relationship. The Christian message is already summarized in the first three chapters of the Bible. And what we're going to be unpacking in the next number of weeks is God trying to work that out with us for thousands of years. We can invite the worship team up. There's three very simple things that God would want you to grab hold of today. The first is that God made you for a relationship with him. The second thing is, is that if you don't feel close to God, you trace back the problem far enough, and it's because you mistrust him and trust in yourself instead. Every single problem in your life can be traced back to the mistrust of God and replacing trust with God with trust in self. And the solution for that is not to come up with our own ways of self-protection, but to receive the covering and love and kindness of Jesus Christ. I think that uh, if you've been in church for a while, that's a little boring. And I hope that none of us will stop being impressed with that story. One of the greatest theologians of all time, his name is Karl Barth, German dude, and uh, profound, wrote volumes and volumes of complicated theology. I've read some of it, super hard to read. Someone asked him once, could you please summarize uh, what you understand Christianity to be. And he says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. One of the things that I find most remarkable of people who have walked with Jesus for a long time is it seems like when you first become a Christian, it's fairly straightforward, and then it gets super complicated as you work out your relationship with him. And as you walk with him for long enough, it becomes clear again what is at the heart of the matter. Relationship, mistrust, trust equals a love relationship. Mm. Father, I pray today that uh, in the complexity of our life, huge questions about how the world began, personal struggles of pain and suspicion and heartache, complicated questions about how society should be run. How am I going to get along with my parents? What happens after I die? 
Father, I pray that in the midst of all of this complication, we would come back to trusting in a loving Father and that you would give us the ability to simplify complexity in a way that gets to the heart of the matter. Father, would you please teach us from Adam and Eve that it is unwise to trust in ourselves, that it is unwise to be clever and to be suspicious. May we never give up a simple trust in you. Help us with this as we worship you now.